Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. And it is a whole new year. It is episode 91, and we are recording on January 4th, 2022. And, uh, McGill, Happy New Year. How's it going? And a Happy New Year to you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I won't say not me to that. (laughs) So far, so good, I guess. We're only four days in. I mean, I I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say at this point. the, The world is still a disaster, but hey. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a disappointment. I think some people were hoping maybe to have all this over and done with by now, but so much for that. Uh, some, I think most doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to, I don't know. It doesn't seem to affect me that much. Like, obviously it affects me, but it, you know, just same old, same old. Um, so it is not only the start of a new month, but a new year. And on, we, we've had this thing now for a little while, right? A new month we cover, what we've been up to for the past little while. Um, Since it's a new year, do we have to cover like everything we've been doing in the past no year? No way. That just take forever. And I'm not going to remember, man. <laughs> I think I can say right, right away. One thing that was new with me is uh, I saw the suicide squad which is oh, not yeah. to be confused with suicide squad um which i haven't seen but the suicide squad um the james gunn uh film and uh it was great it was a great film uh has lots of great little moments it's 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 longer than it needs to be you know it uh sort of I I feel like maybe this was true Guardians of the Galaxy 2 at least if not both Guardians of the Galaxies it's like you know it pretends towards those epic superhero movie lengths that I just feel are so bloated like get out of here oh yeah get out of here I totally agree so it, it, I don't somewhere know that... along the way it's like they decided that movies need to be like over two hours, I think two hours or less. It's too man. much. It's too much. Yeah, I t- I totally, uh, I I'm with you on that one. Um, like I get excited when I notice that like a movie isn't super super long. Um, it's like a treat for me. Uh, that I'm gonna you know get absolutely some actual... when a movie's like ninety minutes, it's like yeah, yeah, it's like oh, I'm gonna get some actual brevity. You know, it's it'll be hard to land, maybe, but for God's sakes, they at least they won't be biting off more than they can chew. Hopefully, um, yeah. So I, I mean, I, heck, even just the idea, like this is ninety minutes long. I could watch two of these in the time it takes me to watch your average Marvel film. That's true, man, and like that just goes back to like, you know, uh, you've recently. <laughs> 
to get into something that you've been watching, uh, the Heart She Hauler, um, but also my beloved uh, Frisky Dingo. These are both shows that have episodes of like 11 minutes long. Uh, same thing with Metalocalypse in its first season. And these are all like, in my opinion, just like super high quality uh, shows that like the writing is so sharp and like the jokes are so constant that uh, they, you get maximum mileage out of those 11 minutes. In the case of uh, the Hershey Hauler, like it's not even just the jokes. Somehow they managed to cram like a full forty-five minute episodes worth of plot into ten minutes, that... and it always just leaves me reeling. It's it's almost like they do a ten-minute version of a recap of an episode and just give you the highlights, but it works. Boy, does it work uh, for yeah, me! Yeah, I think that's a a fair assessment. I think also that statement holds true for frisky dingo frisky dingo is a show although frisky dingo is also highly affected by the fact that like if you don't watch the episodes all together like it is very easy to get lost because so much is going on in the plot and it is very um things escalate very quickly but everything like leads one thing into another so like if you watch any episode out of order you'll be so completely lost because something like so much will have changed from the initial conceit of the show um so i think like they have that in common whereas metalocalypse like would just uh you know focus on a specific thing and uh get really good mileage out of it well, the Archie Hauler is just so like insane that i don't think they care about whether or not you saw the previous episode. Yeah, that's uh that's also probably a fair assessment. What uh like all you need all you need is the basic setup and then it's like and this time uh Hambrosia's head becomes pregnant somehow. And, and so what is that basic setup, McGill? Since we haven't explained for the viewers, we've just m- mentioned this mysterious show that they've probably never heard of. I had never heard of it until you recommended it to me, uh, which was in conjunction of uh, us discussing the works of, is it Victor Chapman? Uh, Vernon Chapman, I think. Vernon Chapman. V, yeah, V name Chapman, but uh, the creator of Wonder Chosen. And uh, also Xavier Renegade Angel, which I feel like is lesser known, but I know you absolutely love that. Um we had been talking about him for some reason, and you mentioned this series, The Heart She Hauler. You had and, discovered uh, and reminded me of uh, his work, Final Flesh, in which that's he right, which I still need to watch. So, but I uh, they're they're probably still around. Is these weird companies in like South America that will produce films to your specifications and they're supposed to be like basically a la carte pornography is what that's what it's supposed to be um but then what this guy did was take that uh system and use it to create his own bizarre surrealist film 
which he got he he got different companies to do different scenes and then sort of spliced it all together. Um, but really, it's just him like trying to make them do things as weird as possible, like like just make them do the most <laughs> unimaginably weird things. Um, and like the thing is, <laughs> like. It says in the description... He's, he clearly saw this service and thought, I can pay them to do anything. Yeah, and, like, it definitely... He takes advantage of it to use, like, his insane writing, which is, like, pretty present throughout Xavier and Hartshe Holler. Um, but the thing is, like, it says in the description, I think, like... Um, no matter what he tells them, they're going to act it to, like, the utmost or whatever. But the fact is, like, it's just, like, they have no idea what's going on. Um, and so I, nothing is, like, not that you could deliver this dialogue particularly, uh, like, with any kind of emotion, really. It's, like, like not that it's comprehensible in that way. Um but, like, the, it's clearly just, like, people who barely speak English kind of, like, muttering lines that they have no idea what they mean. <laughs> um, and I still need to watch it. So, so, yeah, it's like he really gets... He gets more mileage in the film out of the visual stuff, but I think, um, like... The thing is that the script that he wrote is so good, if you can get it in text, that uh, when you brought it up, I saw some quotes from it, and they really uh, killed me. And like, I was like, this is better than I remember that movie being, basically. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we were talking about that, and then I asked if you had any familiarity with the Heart She Holler. And what is the heart she hollers? So this just made me dive right down the rabbit hole. You had described it as like a, I, like a more insane Twin Peaks, I think, I think, I think was the comparison. I think I specifically said like a Cronenberg-esque Twin Peaks comedy or something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you, you said it was Twin Peaks meets Videodrome. Right. But and, but then with Videodrome <laughs> played to like full comedic potential, which is a weird concept, but I think Archie Holler really illustrates how much comedic potential the basic conceits of Videodrome actually have. So the premise of the show is uh I always feel like like, I feel like as I describe it, even the most, like, banal aspects of it, I'm slowly going insane by design. So there is a place called the Heart She Holler, where uh, Harlan Hartshe, is it Harlan? Hoss. Hoss Hartshe is the, the, is he the mayor, I guess? He, he he's the, was. He's, like... The governor. Yeah, he, he was the mayor slash boss, Haas, whatever. Yeah. He he's in charge of this place called the Hartshe he owns Holler. It? And his name Yeah, and his name is Haas Hartshe. And he dies, leaving 
ownership and governance of the hauler, uh, sort of the, the question open of who will take his place. And he has two daughters that everyone knows about, uh, Hershey Hartshe and Hambrosia Hartshe. And Hershey Hartshe is, there's no way about it, she is a tramp. She is a trailer trash tramp. She is like Her a caricature of like, is, a, of like a trailer park lady like sluts like the no uncertain terms her whole thing is about selling her body like that is entirely her and in the most grotesque ways you can think of and then hambrosia harchi is quite literally the stephen king character of carrie she looks like carrie she is sort of meek and timid, but she also has crazy, like, telekinetic powers. Um, and so it is thought in the wake of Hoss's death that one of these two ladies will take over the hauler. But wait, there is a third Hartshe sibling that no one knew about, Herlin Hartshe, played by Patton Oswalt. And the reason no one knew about it is he's been bricked up in the wall of Haas's office since he was an infant. And so in the first episode, this is revealed and from a hole in the wall comes like a hairy, feral Patton Oswalt. And like that is the surface level stuff. But the fact is that the show is just like brain breakingly weird. It's funny because you also there's one detail, one critical detail you missed, which is how Hoss Hartshe relayed all this information to the town, which is that he like you said that he is the mayor. He was the mayor. As of the first episode of the show, he has died, and his video will, which this is the most directly taken from Videodrome thing, uh, because the character, I believe, is it Brian Oblivion in Videodrome, has recorded, recorded VHS tapes where he is talking dead on to the camera um, that account for every possible eventuality in the future of human history beyond his death so that he doesn't have to be actually around to react to things. People can just play tapes of his reactions and they'll be spot on. And this is like... But, but here's the thing is it's not even just that people can play tapes. All the tapes are labeled, of course, with, with bizarre scenarios for him to react to. Uh, the one I like is uh, it's episode two where uh, Har Herlin is trying to open a walnut. I was actually and a tape that I says, was trying to I was still talking about Brian Oblivion. I was not getting on to Haas oh. yet because the thing is Brian Oblivion is the thing from Videodrome, but Haas like the yeah. thing is that like in Videodrome, such a weird and kind of creepy film that I had never really considered how inherently hilarious that idea is. Um, when you take it out of that context of Videodrome and just play it for comedic effect, the way that Haas does, 
where his tapes are like impossibly like the the tapes have labels like you say, but you have no idea what he's actually going to start talking about once you put that in um because he tends to just like hijack people's attention like he like you were going to say I think well, the the reason that I referred to him in the present tense, saying he is the mayor rather than he was the mayor, is his character is basically continuing to live in videotape form because you play a videotape and he just responds to whatever people are saying. Like it is response to an impossible degree and he'll have full conversations with people through these videotapes. So... It really is just like he's alive, even though the conceit is that it's all pre-recorded. Um, anyway, all that to say, like, that's the basic setup that has some weird things. You know, there's a boy living in the wall, but it does nothing to encompass the full degree of weirdness that this show, uh, this show brings with it. There, there's, like, off the top of my head, there's, like, a little voodoo doll person who gets disemboweled in one of the early episodes. Uh, Mima, the, the, I guess she's the heart she matriarch. She can't be killed, and they try over and over. I, I um, also just want to say that, like, your whole description of the show, like, you went through all this stuff about... Uh, there's the boss, and he has the two daughters, and then they excavate the, the the boy. That's the first episode. All of that is the first yeah, that episode. Is, that is ten minutes. <laughs> it takes place over the course of ten minutes. Um, and then we're dealing with, like, there's the local doctor who starts stealing people's teeth in one episode. Uh, Hershey challenges God to prove his existence by knocking her up, and then she refuses to give birth to the Son of God, I think? <laughs> Try to remember if Hershey, that's what happened. Uh, is usually... Okay, so I think it's Hambrosia is married to the sheriff, but Hershey is usually in some involved in some sort of affair with him, though it seems to be kind of like on again, off again throughout the series. Yep. Um, and there is also a character, wait, is it, it's not the sheriff, is it, who's constantly calling phone sex hotlines? Uh, yeah, is that the, the hench son? Yeah, um, and there's an episode where, <laughs> where he discovers that a, a glory hole in the wall of a bathroom stall is like a portal, to a hole on the front of a Bible. <laughs> Man, see, I, I can't talk about it Stigmata, for too long. Or I feel the glorious like, of all holes. Am I, am I even making sense anymore? <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Xavier Renegade Angel, and if nothing else, I feel like it has to be credited because I don't think Hartshe Haller exists without Xavier Renegade Angel. Like... Um, I think there's a real through line of like taking a script, writing it, and then just like turning it into complete madness, almost like Burroughs esque. Well, let me let me sort of loop us back to where we started in this discussion uh, by saying 
you know, you talked about Metalocalypse, Frisky Dingo, Xavier Renegade Angel, and Heart She Holler. But I feel like the Heart She Holler stands apart from those other properties simply because it is live action. I feel like animation kind of invites surreality. So like Xavier Renegade Angel is really surreal, but because it is animated, there is a different sort of, at least for me, suspension of disbelief where I'm a lot more willing to accept bizarre stuff in an animated series. But the Heart She Holler just, it breaks my brain every time I watch it because it is live action and 10 minutes goes by and you never know you're like, you're not the same person by the end of those 10 minutes. It is so strange. It's uh, it's also got like a fair, like there is a lineage that you can follow from wonder shows and up to heart. She holler because wonder shows and had this um, stupid, thing that they would do sometimes i think it was called horse apples that was like it was basically like it was like archie holler without any of the surreal aspects it was just like dumb like redneck jokes basically uh and it was like like bad sets but you would have like zach galifianakis and and Patton oswald like these these who, people who would go on to be big name comedic comedic actors would be playing these bizarre, uh, like politically incorrect roles uh, in these weird little moments in Wonder Chosen. And there is, I think, one episode of Wonder Chosen that's just all horse apples, and it's just like anti comedy basically. Um, but uh, yeah, it's funny because then that leads on to a a show that where they basically do that, but then make it very bizarre. And, uh, but, but keep that sort of like, Oh, what if we got all these comedic actors to play these fucking weirdos? Well, I thank you for the recommendation because the heart she holler is just like one of my favorite things right now. It is so weird. I am constantly, in my life, craving things that are not predictable. I feel like a lot of popular media, like movies in particular, uh, and some TV shows fall into this comforting pattern of familiarity. You know, we already talked about like the Suicide Squad and Marvel movies, how like, you know, the drill with a Marvel movie and Marvel movies kind of make up the majority of movies well, that come. I out. will say the Suicide Squad, like it did at least a dozen things that I would be shocked if any of those mainstream Marvel movies did like one of. Yeah, um, there's so many. I definitely give it weird, credit in that regard, like f weird little flourishes. Uh, yeah, um, even even just like the big action scene with Harley Quinn uh, in that film that uh, like sort of becomes partially animated. Uh, that was great. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's the first time, you know, it makes me feel divided because normally in Fortnite, if I see a Harley, Qu uh, a Harley Quinn, I go, ah, slutty clown or uh, sexy clown. Don't kill me. Ah, and get mad. Um, now I feel different because I've seen her in a movie that was uh, not not lame.
Uh, yeah, that is definitely the case. And uh, I think that one of the strengths of James Gunn's work, even in blockbusters, is he's not afraid to get a little weird. I guess that's sort of the point I was coming to is I love it when something gets weird. Big fan of of taking strange chances. The Harchie Hauler is like wall-to-wall weirdness. But even... When you give someone who thinks of weird stuff like James Gunn, you give him the reins to a big franchise like the Suicide Squad, he manages to to work in some really great strange flourishes in there, be it the character of Polka Dot Man, who was a real highlight for me, or the Weasel, of course, is also, he's not in it enough, but man, he sure leaves an impression. And um... Um, even the... The final, the final monster that they fight. I guess I can spoil it because it's in the commercials. But the big, the kaiju Starro, he's awesome too. Yeah, it's it's awesome because it's unforgettable. And um, anyway, so now we're gonna get to see what he does with a a TV series that James Gunn because uh, he's doing Peacemaker. Oh, yeah, Peacemaker. Mm-hmm. 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 Um. There is one one more thing I would like to talk about while we're talking about what we've been up to. What's that? It's like I want I want your take on this, Tom, but I don't think you've seen it, which is the Matrix Resurrections. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but like I I feel like I should see it. Uh, like I'm interested in it. Not I'm interested in it for like the weird stuff about it that is interesting not like i don't expect it to be like i i don't know if i ever expected it to be a decent good new matrix movie you know um (laughs) the trouble is that i saw like the first episode and a half of sensate and was like this is dumb like just like <laughs> basic plot beats were like so contrived and poorly written i was like what what and like knowing cuz i know that people really liked that uh and you know i think i think that uh the wachowskis both the wachowskis worked on sensate is that right Yes, but I think it was primarily Lana Wachowski. It seems like she's the main filmmaker now of the two of them, and Lily has sort of retreated a bit, though I think Lily has a TV show that she's working on now. Yeah, well, I I, I think I got the same sort of vibe. Um, basically, uh, I think... Basically, I know that, like, following Sensei, like I, I know that they wanted to do more, basically, and uh, basically I knew that they would be continuing in that direction. And since I have like very little appreciation for like the sacrifices in man, uh, just basic uh, informational awareness. Um, I man, I don't know. It's just like it's like. Things that happen in Sensei. I I talked to you about like the specifics of my issue with it, but it's things like 
Um, in the first episode, there's a like these cops take this kid who's been shot to a hospital, and the hospital's like, we can't treat this kid, and they're like, why? And they're like, because he's from a neighborhood that has so many shootings that we're not allowed to treat shooting victims from that neighborhood because it's like, like teaching the neighborhood a lesson about getting shot so much. Like it's the most insanely like, like the show just like goes out of its way to have like contrived like examples of like injustice basically which like i can appreciate that it's a show about like confronting injustice in the world but then i think it's very self-sabotaging to then have like a bunch of really nonsensical made-up justice that would never happen um like a hospital that can't treat shooting victims or uh someone getting shot over dmt which is a very difficult drug to move uh because of how like it's not addictive or anything it's not a habit drug it's like you do it once and you have a weird experience and that's most people don't even want to do it again because it's too intense um and yeah it's just it's just full of stuff like that where it's like um you know, I, I have this issue generally with a lot of, like, comic book, uh, like, series stuff as well, like, like movies and whatnot. It was something that came up for me with Logan is, like, um, I, like, you know, it's, it's... The movie Yeah, Logan? it's, like, it's, it's a dystopic setting, but it's, like... Everything is like uh, 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 everything bad that was happening felt like comic book bad. Like like things, uh, conflict would escalate so dramatically in like a way that I d didn't feel believable at all. Like um, in Logan, it's it has the issue of like he stays with those farmers, and there's like the bad guys who want to shut down their water thing or something, and they're like attacking them or something. But it's like, man, why why are they even, like, why, uh, I don't know. It, it just felt like um, uh, a more blown up version of a real conflict uh, designed to, like, you know, hit the notes on a more, like, uh, hyperbolic level. Do you know what I mean? I know what you're getting at. I think Logan is an interesting example to pull, though, because it's like, yeah, of course it's like a comic book. It's a Wolverine story. Well, no, that's what but, I'm saying uh, is, like, it is comic book, like, that comic book tone to that sort of thing just feels contrived to me. Like, it's a, it's not something that works for me. It's like, I could enjoy Logan, except that, like, when it pretends to be about real injustice... I'm like, but that's not what real injustice looks like. That's that's just more comic book stuff. You might mm. as well just have another supervillain. Okay, I get I get where you're coming from. Anyway, you're you're spot on when it comes to Sense Eight for sure. And there's a lot of Sense Eight in the Matrix Resurrections, and uh, including like actors from Sense Eight. And I definitely came away from it thinking. After Sense8 got cancelled, uh, Warner Brothers went to Lana Wachowski and said, we want to make The Matrix 4, and she went, okay, I'm going to make Sense8. 
But it's because there's a lot of that. But it's also very much like a meta commentary on the Matrix, though, right? Less so than you might be led to believe. Um, there's certainly like the setup at the beginning. The first act of the movie is pretty clearly uh, just sort of reflecting Lana Wachowski's experience in making the Matrix Four. Uh, there's a there's a line. Uh, I, I guess I'll say like minor spoilers for the beginning of the Matrix, but uh, when the Matrix Resurrections starts, Thomas Anderson is working as a video game developer, and his video game, his big hit, was the Matrix. Like as we know it, the Matrix movies. That was actually his video game, and he gets called into his boss's office. And his boss says, our parent company, Warner Brothers, wants to make another Matrix. And they're going to do it with or without you. So you might as well get on board. And I'm, it's pretty clear to me that that is just the conversation that happened at Warner Brothers in making The Matrix Resurrections. <laughs> Somebody was like, we're going to do this anyway. So you might as well get involved. And so Lana Wachowski got involved and, and made this movie. And uh, so there is some, like, meta-commentary on it, but I will say, like, obviously at some point Thomas Anderson is unplugged from the Matrix and wakes up as Neo, and from then on, it's just like, take the plots of four Matrix movies and mash them into one movie, and that's, that's what it is. Like, it becomes much more about sort of doing the Matrix thing with a bit of action thrown in, and, you know, rescuing people from pods and stuff like that. So it seems like the movie itself has a bit of a Last Jedi thing going on. And I don't even mean in terms of, like, the plot. I mean in terms of, like, it, it definitely is different than the other movies in the series. It goes in some weird directions. It has some self-aware winkiness to it. And people seem wildly divided on it. I Man. I people came down right really, in the middle. People seem to be really openly negative about it. I've been seeing, but um... oh no, it's 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 actually like I follow a bunch of people, critics and friends alike, on Letterboxd, and let me tell you, like it is it, here. Here is the range. Uh, a lot of my friends and movie critics that I follow have uh, have watched this. And here is the range of ratings out of five that have been given. Uh, five out of five, 4.5 out of five, four out of five, 3.5 out of five, three out of five, 2.5 out of five, two out of five, and one out of five. <laughs> like every possible rating except for maybe 1.5 out of five has been given. Some people adore it. Some people totally hate it. Very few people are like me, which is just sort of indifferent to it. Yeah, some, I don't know. Some people really like this thing. And it's actually, it's funny. I make The Last Jedi ca comparison because I find that the people in my feed who liked The Last Jedi also really like The Matrix Resurrections. Yeah, I guess that follows. I just, um, you know, I think... The real thing for me, first of all, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, I just can't stand, like, dumb writing. 
like it, it, it just like um, it was a problem for me. Like my biggest issue with the Last Jedi is that it feels like like it's like it's all it feels like there's this whole thing that there's supposed to be a traitor and then there isn't one it feels like there was one script and then they just start writing a different one and also it's like a slow speed chase but then they they also fuck off to some other planet for like just like a detour and none of that worked for me it's all just a bunch of nonsense and it's like i can't stand these all this nonsense stuff where i'm just like just why did they do that why why not do this blah blah you know like star trek into darkness also can't couldn't get past the part where like all the whatever gets in like the circular glass room and they all die and it's like well why did they fucking all get in a very exposed position you know um and was so did sensei so, sensei is also dumb <laughs> can't can't get past the dumb stuff i guess the also the other thing i would say is like when even when i heard about the matrix is like the issue is i can't i i don't think that they're actually at no point did i believe that they had some cool new direction to take the story um you know it's not there was a point there was a point where I did think that and they didn't go the way I thought and I I I'm not saying I am I am smarter but I think my idea would have been a little more mind blowing. This and is it, something was about it, the was new Matrix. Watching the film that you had that idea? Or did you No, it was watching the preview that I had that idea. Okay. Um because here's the thing about Matrix movies is uh, what, you know, they, they sort of offer something for everybody. If you like action, they te- they have cool action in them. If you Not like cyberpunk stuff. No, the, the action actually really stinks in this one. But what I always liked about it is I liked that these were movies that were asking those philosophical questions to try and blow your mind, but in like a philosophy 101 style thing. Like they're not getting super deep into it but just the idea like hey man what if it's all a simulation what what would you do if you could download anything into your brain immediately and you know it makes you ask questions and think about things i did not find that the new one probed very deeply at all and to, to me that's sort of the greatest failing of it Matrix is all about, like, what if this, what if that, and I did not see any what-ifs happening in The Matrix Resurrection. I just think um, that uh, if you make a new movie, you should have a cool idea for a new movie. You shouldn't just, you know, The Matrix movie, it's it's fully relevant that it was going to get made either way. So, it you know, this is the whole thing of, like, I never believed that they were putting this out because somebody had come out with a great new idea for the matrix, you know, and that is basically text at this point. Yeah. Nobody has cooked up, uh, a cool ass idea like Lord of Jumanji. Uh, instead they're just like, let's just do another one. And I'm like, come up with a good idea first. I so, got that idea. I've seen The Matrix Resurrections twice. 
And here's what I'll say is I find that the text of the movie is not good. It is a real big mess. It is overstuffed. It's sort of, it's like the worst aspects of Wachowski properties. Too many ideas, but they're all very on the nose. You know, it, it feels like it goes on way too long, so much longer than it needs to. But I don't think it's a total loss because I think there is some genuinely interesting subtext to it. It's the kind of movie where I don't want to watch it again, but I'd write a film paper on it. You know, that kind of thing. So I don't think it is a total waste of time, but I think it's sort of like what it, what it implies but doesn't say is a lot more interesting than anything it actually tries to say. Well, we just talked for a bunch about what we've been up to for the last while. You got anything else to talk about what you've been up to for the last while? No, man. I think I kind of hogged this one. Yeah, well, I've I mostly just been uh man, I I haven't been doing anything. It's been hard to even get these recordings going because I just been lying in bed, not getting out of bed. It's uh it's a dark season. Anyway, it's episode 91. I have another operation for us. It's Operation Ending Sky. It's yet another military operation which I I'm thinking this time, I may take from a slightly different angle than I did the previous one. But um, meanwhile, we're keeping on with the verse on your end. That's right. Uh, the crew has a new job. They're going to a new planet. And, uh, you know, as always, there's, there's trouble afoot. His title you got for this session, The Slaughterhouse at Whitefall. It sounds like a quest out of Skyrim or something. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's a bit misleading, though. It's not what you'd expect from a title like that. Well, uh, yeah, who do, who do we want to go first? Oh, you should definitely go first. We mostly talked about stuff that I was doing, so I've, I've rambled on quite a bit already. All right, so I got Operation Ending Sky. When we left off, they had just uh, secured Port Ravendusk in the naval invasion launched by uh, the Draelic army against the Deathlands to finally liberate the Deathlands from the influence of the Nightside Eclipse. And... Really, so so they've taken Port Raven Dusk, but then there are surrounding areas of importance, um, one of which is the Fortress of Raven Dusk Keep, um, which uh, is based on River Guard Keep from Princes of the Apocalypse, which uh, I did a little bit of research on last night, and like, you know, you. If you look up River Guard Keep, uh, from Princes of the Apocalypse online. There's all sorts of people that, like, you got the original map that was in the Princess of the Apocalypse. Then you got people done drawn out the map. You got people redid the map in, you know, different graphics. You got people done the map in, like, a 3D diorama. People done the map in real-life diorama. Not, like, 3D graphics, but, like, they made it with little pieces. Um, 
I love that stuff. I I really like it. Uh, this happened to me recently in the campaign I'm running with uh, the Yawning Portal Inn in Waterdeep. The Yawning Portal is a very popular, famous D&D abode, like inn, place to stay. And uh, when I went looking for a map of it, turns out there are just dozens and dozens of them. So many people have done their take on uh, the Yawning Portal. And uh, River Guard Keep, I think also one of the things that came up in a search is like there's maps from like Neverwinter Nights 2 for River Guard Keep, but that River Guard is spelt different. It's River Guard, but it puts the U in guard, whereas the other one is River Guard Keep is no U. Anyways, all this to say, this is one of the elemental cult strongholds uh, or, or uh, haunted fortresses, I believe they're referred to in Prince of the Apocalypse. I talked about uh, in an episode previous how the campaign is divided into four fortresses of the elemental evil cults. Then following that, each of them has a temple. And then following that, each of them has an elemental node, etc. Um, so Riverguard Keep is the fortress for the elemental cult of water. However, um, in this uh, Operation Ending Sky, because it is like a military invasion situation, I ran it, uh, I would say, like, I think that generally, if I would expect someone to run Riverguard Keep in Princes of the Apocalypse as something where it's like you you sneak in, you have some way of infiltrating the keep. Um, but in this case, it's like this keep was an objective, Raven Dust Keep, and so the players simply had to like assault it. It was like they had this fortress, and it's like you gotta assault this fortress. It's full of bad dudes. It's a strategic objective. And so um, basically I just ran this as a full on like presented the fortress and said like, okay, what do you do? And I know every part of the fortress, how many men are at each point and whatnot. Um, and the players just had to attack the fortress however they saw fit. And um, so it was divided into the following parts. So there was the outside. So out front, there's sort of like no man's land where you have a certain number of enemies uh, waiting. Then the gateway into the fortress, before it gets into the fortress proper, uh, there's like an entry choke point where it's like a corridor you have to pass through where there are sort of uh, like... uh, archer points basically on either side of it you have to come through this sort of corridor before you pass into the main more open courtyard of the fortress and so if you break through the gates then you're passing through this corridor where you're like enfiladed by archers uh before you have to break through another gate to actually get into the larger grounds of the fortress and beyond that got the courtyard sort of open ground then in terms of like uh sheltered structures you've got the barracks you've got a watchtower uh guard tower 
Um, the guard tower, as opposed to the watchtower, is more like a garrison. Um, there's, in the middle, there's, like, a point where a wave of reinforcements triggers. So, like, once they get into the courtyard, then from the center of the fortress, a wave of reinforcements engages them. Then past that, there is a, a chapel, a throne room, the stores of the fortress, and the dungeon. Between all these places, you got 66 bandits, 21 reavers, three thugs, and three warlocks. And the warlocks have the eldritch chains or eldritch serpents ability that I've mentioned before, which is like their eldritch blast attack also has a sort of constricting uh, grappling effect. But all this to say, like, the thing is, I could say, like, which enemies are stationed at which areas, but the fact is, the way that this played out was it was more like they were fighting everything at once. Um, part of this was because of the way they chose to engage with the fortress. I mentioned the whole thing about breaking through the front gate and being potentially enfiladed, but they didn't even risk that trap um, because they chose to just fly over the fortress from the very beginning. Um, they immediately just like went straight over the walls into the heart of the fortress. And, you know, it's it seems crazy to have a party of, of three adventurers just, like, drop into, like I mentioned, like, 66 bandits. Even though bandits, like, at this point, the players could take out a bandit easily. Like, bandits have very little health. Uh, and so the real thing to know about and I think I've talked about this before, but I really want to highlight it this time because it was such an uh, an essential uh, linchpin of the character is Ara Stormblast Kendor. There is a, a an ability, Storm Clerics get access to the ability Destructive Wave at some point. This spell... Um, I've definitely mentioned it before. It's something that Aura Stormblast can do, or it was like his signature move. It's just like, it's a classic, like you send out a shockwave and it blasts back everybody around you. But Aura Kendor's destructive wave, I, I guess the thing to mention about it is that like the Storm Cleric gets it, but then also Storm Clerics have an ability that lets them maximize thunder damage uh, on certain abilities and stuff. And so you could basically do a th destructive wave and make sure that everybody took the full thunder damage, which was something like uh, like 30 or something like that, like even early on. And so... Like, you have these huge groups of enemies in this fortress, and then Arakendor basically flies down and is like a living bomb. Like, he just comes down, flies down among all these enemies, and, like, the more of them swarm around him, the better, because then he just, like, blasts them all back. Uh, you know, it's like that um, in the Fellowship of the Ring when they show the flashback of Sauron just whacking whole groups of dudes in the battlefield you remember that <laughs> yeah 
Harakendor, he's just going down doing these strategic destructive waves that just like wipe out huge chunks of the enemy defending force all at once. Um, and so like, you know, we talked about uh, previously like these very heavy, com like combat heavy encounters, how they can sort of bog down. And you would think that maybe this was one where it didn't. But I remember this session actually being like, relatively fast for something that was like they just went in literally like the, it was just straight up a fortress assault and they just they decided to do an aerial assault and attack from above um there were a few like unique things i mentioned uh there's uh, in the courtyard the there among the enemies there were three giant rats uh, that were sort of allowed to roam free and attack uh, enemies that landed in the courtyard. But of course, anything that came towards Ara when he landed just got blown the fuck away. Um, the reinforcement wave that I mentioned was led by two bandit captains who sort of came charging out of one of the central structures of the fortress. Um, in the guard tower, uh, opposed to the watchtower, um, the guard tower was manned by bugbears instead of regular infantry, so it was sort of like an auxiliary garrison. Um, in the chapel, there was a nightside eclipse priest, of course. And then down in the dungeon, you got six ghasts that were probably unfortunate prisoners at one point that got turned into ghasts by way of a terrible ritual. Um, but also, another weird little thing, is uh, in the throne room of the fortress, fortress which has since been evacuated, um, were two werebores. Um, these dudes that were lycanthropes, but they were also boar lycanthropes. So they had like sort of tusks and stuff. But it was kind of funny, you know, in the in a situation of like this pitched battle, you know, if two dudes are slightly piggish it doesn't necessarily like register out of all the soldiers that they are like special things right um i guess you gotta make them more like uh gamorian guards or something you could potentially make, do that if you make went, them distinctively piggish if if you wanted to play that up like that's the way to do it um but i don't think i did i think what happened was they, I know that when it came to the throne room, it was Chessie basically was using her super speed to like very quickly all check each of the structures to see what was in each one. And like in each one, so like she checked the stores or the guard tower and generally she'd see like, oh, three bugbears in the guard tower. I can take those out, wipes them out has enough you know she has haste she has super speed she has enough attacks that she can kill them all fairly quickly um and so with the werebores she just immediately like zipped into the throne room started attacking them but i don't think she entirely like acknowledged that they were lycanthropes or, or recognized that and so one of them did manage to get a hit in that she failed the save in but like without really it wasn't clear in that moment, like, oh, you've contracted werebore lycanthropy. It was just like a moment in this battle where she took a hit 
And I noted away like, oh, that's going to come back. And it's this really interesting thing of like, you know, if one soldier in an entire battle was a werewolf and you happen to get bitten by that soldier, would you would you clock like afterwards to get it checked out or anything or would it just be like, ah, oh, one of those bastards bit me? Um, I, you know, it, I guess it's different if it's you're fighting this undead force It's more likely one of these bastards is going to bite you. Whatever the case, or um, I think in this case it may have actually just been like it headbutt, uh, one of them headbutted Chessie and like, like hit her with the tusks, you know. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, I also wanted to talk about, since I'm talking about the sort of tactical approach of each of the players, um, I don't get to talk much about Nestle's uh, whole sort of tactical approach partially because she was basically her big thing was that she was an elven sniper was like, you know, she was an elf ranger with, uh, typically just like a rifle of some kind. And then, um, you know, she would have ranger spells that sometimes were really clutched. Like sometimes if they had an enemy that was approaching through a corridor, she could drop, uh, I think, um, spike growth or something. It's like the spell where you cause spikes over an area so that if people move through it, they take damage for every five feet of movement they progress. And so you can make it really debilitating to come like if you can control the points of access by which an enemy force approaches, uh, you can make that approach very debilitating for them. I've definitely just ask the 300 Spartans. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, I, I think there's a specific example from this campaign that I covered previously where she had a really clutch spike growth where it was like wolves were coming through like a tunnel or something and by covering that uh tunnel like the wolves would just like die by the time they reached the party um but i want to actually zoom in on some of the specific abilities that at this point like the party's level 20 the specific abilities that made nestle so specifically potent as like this sniper um, so one of them is one of the basic ranger hunter abilities from the core rule book. One of the first ones you get, you get a choice out of three, but the one she chose was horde breaker. And this is just a really solid, uh, thing for making her effective at dealing with large groups of enemies like this. Like I want to sort of highlight how this session went quickly, even though it was full of so much combat, like. 66 enemies and things like this um so horde breaker is an ability where you can make an arranged attack against someone and then make another ranged attack immediately against anyone who is within five feet of them so nice. anytime there is like a formation of dudes and they're within five feet of each other she can attack two dudes instead of once in addition she had the volley ability, which is you have the option to basically um, make an attack against everyone in an area rather than 
you know, attack a specific target or a target and someone within five feet of them. Instead, you can sort of like pepper an area with fire where you do an attack against each person in a small area. So she had volley if there were even more people in a small in a small cluster than were in like once she had that, it was sort of the upgrade to Horde Breaker, but she could, um, you know, do whichever one was more appropriate if there were just two people next to each other she could hit them both but if there were like three dudes all very close to each other she could hit all of them then she also had the feet sharpshooter which basically negates long range penalties makes so that as long as you can like see an enemy they don't benefit from cover um makes it so that you can it's like you can take a penalty of minus 10 to do an extra dice of damage or something like that. And Nestle's once she was at this point, Nestle's like ranged attacks were so good that unless the enemy was really well armored or really, really well protected, um, there was like no reason to ever not take the minus 10 because the, the, her chances of hitting were so high, except that she got a terrible reputation for having the worst luck that I think I or Spencer had ever seen in a character. Like Spencer, um, who played Chessie. So Spencer uh, has run games with uh, a friend of ours named Daniel, who... Daniel often has like it seems like he has very bad dice luck um and he's always getting mad at his dice but Spencer is always like <laughs> quietly as someone who plays with him a lot Spencer has like testified to like quietly doing it, doing the probability like when Dan is getting mad and like he's like you know in the end it does average out but after saying that, playing in this campaign with Nestle, he was like, Nestle was genuinely cursed. Her rolls did not even out. The number of natural ones she rolled was insane, especially considering Oof. that it was only on a natural one that she could miss in many conditions. Um, oh, no. Which it's funny because it was this recurring joke where it was like technically Nestle should have never been missing and yet she missed so often that she was just like in character Nestle was convinced that there was something just wrong with MPOC firearms. She was like there's something wrong with these fucking things so you gotta make these things better. Um, so and then it's funny because I haven't even really quite gotten into yet um because I think that this is actually uh, before we like, like this is the end of this act. And then we're going to be jumping past the invasion of Port Raven desk to some more scenarios in this invasion um, as we continue with the liberation of the Deathlands. But as we continue, uh, I believe that we'll be covering um, since the players were leveled since the characters were level 20, but they were still playing, um, I started to play with the 
epic boons, which are described in the Dungeon Master's Guild. Do you know anything about this? No, I don't know about epic boons. So these are uh, rules provided in the Dungeon Master's... Or I said the Dungeon Master's Guild. I meant the Dungeon Master's Guide. The Dungeon Master's Guide has rules for epic boons, which are... um, They're like features that you can purchase once you're max level. It's like it even has a a system for like you can buy an epic level, an epic boon every so many XP past level 20. And we did uh, play with that rule. The only thing that I did was that I specifically picked out which epic boon each character got. Um, But it ended up working out really well because on each level that each player got an epic boon there was just like something that was perfect to them so for example like there's one that's called like heart of the storm or something and it just like it increases it lets you do thunder wave for free or something it increases the thunder damage you do and it's just like okay that's perfect for arakendor that's like he would get that anyway similarly um Chessy was constantly using haste and so there was like something about like the ability to cast a a certain level of spell an extra number of times or something I was like okay Chessy gets like epic haste or something um and so Nestle when she got these they were always something that was tailored to like being a more elite sniper uh I think one of them was like you can choose to just like get a 20 on an attack and so like some like every once a long rest she could just like do that um so you know every level Nestle was becoming a more efficient sniping machine um, the last thing that I wanted to cover uh, when talking about this operation, because I'm not sure when it's going to come up and I don't want to cover it, or I, I don't want to miss it uh, or forget to cover it, is that I continued to monitor Chessie's Moon Pig Madness, which was uh, <laughs> my uh, in fiction name for Werebore Lycanthropy. And uh, the really funny thing, I guess, the, so the thing is that eventually the the revelation was that, um, so she has this goblin lover, Dax, and it was Dax who noticed. Oh my god, did she, did noticed, she give Dax moon pig madness? Well, no, it was Dax noticed that she was gaining weight. Because she was gaining <laughs> piggish tendencies and she was like eating more. And it was this weird moment of he's like, hey, uh, you know, I, I noticed you've been uh, it, like it. It's funny because it, it wasn't a thing of like him awkwardly trying to tell her she's getting fat. It was him basically being like, you know, I know she's been eating a lot and stuff and uh you know, I just wanted to let you know that I like it. You know, uh, it's just more of you to love. I got no problems. With, like, he, it was basically him <laughs> Aww, saying, like, I'm totally, I totally appreciate this. And Chessie was like, wait, what? And, like, Chessie, it wasn't until that moment that she was like, oh, 
oh yeah, wait, hey, wait a minute. And then she got it checked out and then realized, oh, she has moon pig madness. Um, and like, I, I totally <laughs> gave the player funny. the opportunity to just like keep it and everything. And was this whole thing, like, like Nestle thought it was really funny, this awkward moment of like him bringing up her weight. And it's like, wait, what are you trying to say? Dax? And he's like, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm, I'm saying, I love you however you are. And, uh, it was just a funny little side plot thing where like, I would have totally allowed Chessie to like get the bonuses of, of moon pig madness, uh, like I get a tusk attack and eventually, you know, be able to transform and get like a some sort of constitution constitution bonus or something. But um, yeah, she decided to get it cured once she determined she had it. Anyway, that was Operation Ending Sky, the assault on Raven Dusk Keep. Technically, just a huge battle session, but you know, there's a lot in there, a lot going on. Hey, you throw in that moon pig madness, and uh, it definitely sets things apart a bit. So, is it off to the verse? I think so. All right. Uh, so, um, the last uh, the last episode we recorded, the last adventure was actually sort of picking up the loose end, like tying up the loose ends of various side quests associated with the main quest of that session, which was the Peterson Counter-Strike, the sort of diehard hostage situation at uh, at a soiree. And the players also did a bunch of little side quests. So this session picks up uh, right on the heels of the party. Things are winding down. The party's kind of been salvaged. You know, everybody's talking about the excitement, but... Uh, but uh, Grant Peterson is really grateful that the heroes helped save him from the hostage situation. And uh, things just sort of wind down. Uh, uh, Song and Gale are, are tripping out because they took drugs halfway through the party and the drugs kicked in and they got all giddy and, and hilarious. And uh, so the party winds down and the next day uh the crew of the phoenix is kind of collecting themselves getting ready and uh i had also mentioned that during the party minerva met with a guy named percival who is uh he's basically he, like anything to do with dogs that's his business he's a dog breeder he runs a dog racetrack and when minerva's dog allegro ran off a few sessions ago it was Percival who found him and took him in. And so Minerva and Percival crossed paths at the party, sorted out, you know, the the whole thing about Allegro. And uh, Percival said, all right, well, you know what? I'll come over. I'll come by your the hangar where your ship is parked tomorrow. I'll bring your dog back. And I have a job for you guys if you're open to it. And of course, the... The crew are always open to new gigs. And so the next day, Percival pulls up to the hangar bay. Uh, Allegro, you know, jumps off his little uh, hover hover bike, uh, hover mule that is pulling a, a big pallet uh, behind it. And uh, the pallet is just like, it's it's got a, a big metal storage container and you can just hear uh, dogs wildly barking. The container is full of caged dogs. 
And so Percival says, all right, well, uh, the job is I need you to ferry these dogs, they're coursers, hunting dogs, uh, over to the nearby planet of Whitefall and deliver them to an old friend of mine who specializes in training horses and hunting dogs. His name is you Eagle. You know, I, I was like, I, I was, you say he's got these dogs, and I'm like, ooh, but there's a twist. They're psychic dogs. But, you know, I don't know if things get that crazy sci-fi in, in the verse, you know? Well they, well, they do. Psychics do exist in the verse. I mean, if you've watched Firefly, you know that Summer Glau's character, River, has, like, psychic powers. She has, like, abilities of premonition and mind reading and things like that. Um... But they're not super common, and these dogs are not psychic. They are just standard hunting dogs. And uh, Percival's friend, Eagle Eye Serafina, who lives on White Planet Whitefall, uh, he's ordered a bunch of them. And so, you know, Percival lays out the deal. I've informed Serafina to expect you. He's expecting these coursers within seven days. Payment will be waiting upon notification of your delivery. Um... Percival gives them the option saying, like, I'll wire you credits, or if you want something untraceable, we can do that too. Uh, but they just say, like, yeah, wire us the credits. And uh, Percival sort of drops off the cargo and heads away, and Daniel's like, all right, you know, stow the cargo. Let's uh, make sure we got enough supplies, and uh, let's head over there post-haste. There's a little sort of side dalliance because Daniel and Chow have to fence the package that Chow has. And I'll just sort of skip over that because it, it, it's a, actually the, the way the, the situation with the fence went down. It's a lot like, uh, like something out of Skyrim or Fallout where, you know, Chow had contacted his friend and his friend is like, oh yeah, what you want to do is you want to meet with my friend uh, in Largo named Alexandra Michaels. She's a bit twitchy, and uh, look for her around the abandoned church at the east end of town. So, like, they go there and wait, and they find, the, they spot the NPC, and then they have some negotiations, and they fence the goods, and that's about it. So the Phoenix takes off for Whitehall, and... Nice and simple, you know? Sometimes you don't want every time to be a crazy heist. Yeah, Exactly. But it's the kind of thing, too, where it's like taking care of a loose end, just sort of tying it up, just have this little scene. Where I will they go say, in. like, I, I said, like, you can't have everyone be a heist. But, man, if you try and make everything be like a big heist like that, that's a good way to have your characters seem really incompetent really fast. It's because true. the number of, like, crazy complex heists that go sideways is just, you know, it gets... If you turn everything into one of these like tense thriller situations, chances are like the majority are going to go sideways and you're just going to start to feel like these are a bunch of dinguses. That's um, just it, right? I mean, this speaking more generally about role playing games, it's kind of this idea like, like I don't always call for checks. I don't call for people to roll the dice. Sometimes my players will anticipate a check where there isn't one, where they're like, so, uh, can I roll intelligence to see if I know about this guy? And I'll just be like, oh, you don't have to roll it. Yeah, you know all about this guy. So, my philosophy is, you know, you don't need to make a roll for literally everything. 
in particular because, as you said, the more roles you do, the more opportunities there are for things to go wrong. And uh, you don't you don't need it's a that. real tricky device in uh, vampire because uh, you know you gotta feed, you gotta roll every time you feed. The the more you feed, the more chances there are that one of these feedings is gonna go wrong. And uh, I've had that experience. Wasn't pretty. <laughs> uh, so they fence the goods pretty quickly, and then they head off for Whitefall. And I put a lot of emphasis on the way there that, like, this is not a pleasant trip. There are lo- the, the whole cargo bay is like a kennel now. There are cages stacked three high in several rows. The dogs are constantly barking and making noise. Uh, Allegro is just going nuts, barking nonstop because there are so many dogs. Uh, and on the way to Whitefall, the crew also has to feed the dogs, water the dogs, take them out of their cages and exercise them like just up and down the Just let them eat the, the centipedes. Let them eat the centipedes. Um, because I like to, you know, play to the characters, uh, not their strengths, but like their specialties, I did a little skill challenge where uh, Song realized that a couple of the dogs were acting strangely and they seemed to be sick. So he did his sawbones thing. He did, you know, medicine checks to identify whatever malady they were suffering from. Uh, He identified it as something called Huddler's Malady, which is a really contagious canine virus. But he was able to use his craft pharmaceutical skills. Is that real or made up sci-fi stuff or did you make that up? That's uh, made up sci-fi stuff. From what? I think I think I actually made it up. I don't have a note here. It's oh, just, that's sick. I love uh, that. I'm just going to I'm just going to do a quick search for this to see if I made it up. Yeah, I I Oh, wait, wait, wait. What's this? Watch out for Huddler's disease. Wow, interesting. Um so at the time, this is actually really funny. Uh, at the time, I had made it up. Huddler's malady is a uh, an actual, like just made up uh, malady from my brain. However, uh, in doing a quick Google search on it, I see that um, that the Calgary Flames in 2015 uh, they had a a forward called Jerry Huddler who was suffering from a malady. So if you Google Huddler's malady, you find out that in 2015, Jiri Huddler, the hockey player, suffered from a malady. But that that was, doesn't count. You made it up. I did make it up. Um, and so he, uh, Song does some craft pharmaceutical and comes up with like a, a cocktail of drugs that will relieve the symptoms and attack the underlying virus. Injections are really quick, and so they administer this treatment to all the dogs, not just the sick ones, to make sure that none of them catch or spread this virus. And uh, I also did some uh, some other skill checks. I had uh, Chow uh, do a mechanical, a knowledge mechanical skill check to see what's going on about the engine. It's been acting a bit jittery over the course of the trip. Um, and, uh, he succeeded, but the consequences of failing would have been, he doesn't notice the problem and then 
engine issues act up when they try to leave Whitefall. But that eventuality did not happen. And then finally, um, they arrive Safe. at they arrive at Whitefall, and the planet is surrounded by uh, like a rudimentary system of satellites drifting about in inconsistent orbits. And it's sort of like a satellite net, basically. And uh, so uh, Caesar spots this and goes like, I don't know if I want to deal with this. So uh, she did a, a pilot skill challenge to slip in amongst the satellites unnoticed, like find a gap in the satellite field and uh, head down to... Space make, Frogger! Uh, yeah, very Space Frogger. And head down to make Planet Fall uh, unnoticed. And uh, this was a really key skill challenge for this adventure because, unbeknownst to the players, the planet of Whitefall is ruled over by this woman named Imogen Patience, who considers herself like the self-appointed governor. And she's got her own little militia, but, you know, most of the ranchers and stuff on uh, on Whitefall, which is a, it's like a moon around a larger planet called Athens. Uh, nobody on Whitefall likes Patience. And Patience, this is another case of me tying it into Firefly the TV series. Patience is a character who shows up in a couple of scenes of one episode, making a deal with the crew of Serenity, and on Whitefall, and she acts as the governor. So, you know, it's just another opportunity to kind of tie it into the, the larger lore of the series, but in an inconsequential way. Um, the Phoenix lands at Serafina's ranch, and they meet with him. He comes out with a small posse of, uh, of like, gunmen to make sure they're on the level. He's happy with the dogs, and... Uh, they talk a bit about, like, he mentions that Imogen Patience runs most of the things on Whitefall, and it's pretty obvious that he dislikes her. Uh, he says, you know, if you want to find work while you're here, or just, like, relax, but in a place where you're unlikely to cross paths with Patience or her goons, he goes, you might want to ask around the slaughterhouse. It's like an unofficial uh, hangout for cattle ranchers and hunters in town. Um, the crew get paid and then they decide, Hey, you know what? Tonight, let's just go hang at the slaughterhouse. And the reason I said the slaughterhouse is like a misnomer is because it's a, it's like a bar, but, uh, it's really only called the slaughterhouse because it was built out of an old slaughterhouse. The building used to be a slaughterhouse, but the bar, even though it's full of rough and tumble characters, they do not take kindly to bad behavior or crude language even don't swear at the slaughterhouse um and they are you know even though they're ranch hands they're impressed by like fine clothes and civilized manners and they treat people accordingly so it's it's actually like a pretty nice watering hole where you know bar brawls don't break out here that's not to say though that there isn't fighting because there is a bare-knuckled boxing ring in the center, and it seems like the, the local uh, pastime is watching these boxing matches. So everybody goes into the slaughterhouse to just, you know, have a few drinks, uh, uh, rub elbows with the locals, get some information, 
And of course, as you might guess, Gale immediately goes, I want in on these fights. So he finds someone who is acting as like a ringside manager for the fighters. This guy, Jeremiah Fong, and uh, immediately is like, okay, yeah, you know, let's get get you into the ring. You look like you can swing a fist. So, uh, and Chow got in on this too. So Chow and Gale try their hands in uh, the boxing arena. And as that's going on, um, Song and Caesar find a game of tall card that people are playing and they take part in the game of tall card and then use that opportunity to gather information about the locals. A lot of this is just sort of greater world building, finding out that... Oh, there's no need to rough me up, sir. Get this kid out of here. He's got meat cards up his sleeves. <laughs> oh, is this, this uh, game really legal? <laughs> well, as long as he's polite, they will generally be tolerant. I give the players a lot of opportunities to just, like, look around at the crowd, take a look at all the various NPCs puttering around, I have several, like, pre-made NPC sheets with details on all of them. And just in case, like, you know, in case uh, Song and Caesar are playing cards and they're like, what's that guy's name? Well, that guy is Dimitri Markham, a local sheep rancher. Okay, who's that guy? That's Enos Barkley. He owns the largest general store in town. And on and on and on. So I just have, like, little write-ups for all the people who are at this shindig. And one of note is uh, I even I have in my write-up for this adventure too. This is a case where I passed a note to Caitlin because it's something that only Minerva would know. And she recognized a cowboy at the bar as Saul Potter, who is an old acquaintance of hers uh, from her days in service of the Browncoats. Uh, so she knew him back in her military days. And uh, after spotting him, she approaches and they have like a little warm reunion and uh he says he's like you know what brings you here they have a, a little conversation and he says that if they're interested he's actually got a job for him because he needs a ship to ferry four passengers and their personal belongings to another nearby planet called Bellerophon as soon as possible um and it's the the kind of thing where I give them, I gave her and the other players options. Like, do you even want to do this? Do you want to ask for more information? Uh, haggle over the price. And through negotiation, uh, the, they're going to get a thousand credits up front to deliver these, these people, these friends of Saul's. Um, so a deal is struck and they start discussing arrangements for it. And uh, the the sort of end, the concluding part of this, a lot of the this adventure was just like mini games, right? It was playing cards, it was boxing, it was cutting deals and learning about the locals. And uh, then once they'd agreed, like, okay, we'll we'll transport these these people to the nearby planet of Bellerophon before we head back to Ezra and collect uh, the rest of our stuff and our fee and everything. And uh, so after doing all the mini games, they start putting together the details and they realize that they are going to need a bigger fuel tank and a full fuel tank to 
make it to Bellerophon, and then head back to Ezra without stopping in between. And, you know, the, the Phoenix, because they are sort of setting themselves up to do longer haul missions, they're like, okay, a bigger fuel tank is a good idea. And so they head to the Whitefall shipyard and deal with this pair of, like, ugly hick mechanics who smell like garbage and they wear, like, dirty overalls. And, uh haggle a bit about drums of fuel. Well, there's your problem. Yeah, exactly. And getting a, an even bigger uh, tank. And uh, the this concluded with them meeting up with the people that they are going to be transporting. And it's, it's three guys. Uh, well, here. Uh, it's three guys who are just, again... Get ready for of, that fan cast, folks. <laughs> well, uh, actually, you know, I, I didn't say my fan casting, but my fan casting for uh, Percival was B.D. Wong. Uh, good old B.D. Wong. And um, I'm not fan casting the people they're transporting yet, because while three of them uh, are just sort of like standard cowboy style gunmen, the fourth one who introduces himself as Mr. James, wears a mask. He doesn't want anybody to know his identity. And so they're immediately the players are, are pretty uh, skeptical about this. But, you know, a deal's a deal, and Minerva trusts Saul Potter. And so they go, okay, like they cautiously agree to transport these people uh, and get them on the ship. Now, as... You gotta tell us what kind of mask it is. Uh, I had it as uh, just like uh, one of those. It's it's almost like an eyes wide shut mask, like one of those white masks that covers the whole face, but it doesn't have any like gilding or anything. He also wears like a white suit. That sounds more like a full Phantom of the Opera mask. Yeah, kind of a full Phantom mask. Because the thing is, the, the half mask is what I think of whenever I think of the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, that's the trouble. Do you know those dancers, the Jabberwockies? The dancers called the Jabberwockies? I don't think I do know them. Oh, because they wear white, blank white masks. Same idea. Um, so as the players are loading up the fuel and getting uh, Mr. James and his men on board with all their stuff, suddenly uh, patients and a posse of 10 men on horseback start riding up to the shipyards and they are like they mean business. They're going to demand docking fees. You know, I just want to touch goods. on that. I I just want to touch on that mask. I think the easiest way to describe that type of mask is uh, call it a porcelain mask. Right? Oh yeah, because yeah, even yeah. if it isn't made of porcelain, you get that visual. It is exactly that. Um. So basically what has happened is sometime during their stay, Patience has caught on to the fact that a ship has landed on Whitefall and has not paid their fair share. And so she and a posse start riding up to the shipyards to demand docking fees, tariffs on goods, fees for vagrancy. Um, and the total is going to be 5,000 credits. But the players didn't stick around to find out. 
they did a one of those like shootouts, uh, a Moss Eisley hangar style thing where they they do some shooting at the posse, take up some cover, and slowly like sh- back their way onto the ship, guns blazing, and then take off and and break Atmo with uh, Mister James and his men on board, and uh, as they are flying away. Caesar catches like in the rear view camera that a hunter intercept a hunter interceptor class ship is in hot pursuit. Patience is sending someone after them. And that's where the excursion to Whitefall concluded. So I just want to say some things. It was actually I considered bringing it up in my what I've been up to. It's what I've been up to very recently is that um so my dad's retiring soon. And he's planning to get a 3D printer and he wants to get into war gaming. Uh, but his whole thing is like World War II tanks. He's into small scale World War II tanks. So uh, the idea that he's going to get into war gaming and obviously that's going to be his interest has me looking into systems for like World War II war games that he can that we can get into. And so this has brought me back to an old classic turn-based strategy game called Steel Panthers. You ever heard of this? Steel Panthers. The name rings a bell, but I've never played it. It's just a solid hex-based, you know, land battle, World War II simulator um, from, like, the early 90s or something. It runs in DOS. I've been playing it in DOS. Takes me back, you know. But... The thing about Steel Panthers, it's funny because I have this weird relationship with Steel Panthers because I played it as a kid because my dad had it, you know, back in the early 90s. But I totally like my my child understanding of that game, like like it has a sort of visual language where, you know, you see the animation of uh, like a shell will get fired from a tank and then the explosion will hit the hex of what it's targeting. But like the closer to the middle of the hex that explosion animation plays the like that reflects how close a hit it is. And so if you see the explosion hit in the middle, it's like, Oh, that's probably going to be a direct hit. And as a, but as a child, I read that as, Oh, the challenge of the game is to click as much in the middle of the hex as possible. This has no bearing on the quality of the hit. You could click the corner of the hex every time, uh, and it's it, it doesn't matter. But for some reason, as a child, the fact that the explosion happening in the middle of the hex seemed to have a bearing on the quality of the hit, I thought that for some reason you lined up your little cursor with the middle of the hex in order to hit better. And uh, that's not how the (laughs) game worked, so I must have been very frustrated. But um, it's a game... It's also a game where, like, there's a lot of, like, you hit, but it has no effect. So I was always playing, and I always... Like, I was always playing as a kid and being like, I don't get it. I clicked the hex, the bullet shot at the tank from my tank... The explosion happened on the center of the tank, and now the other tank's just fine. But, of course, I wasn't uh, great at reading at that age, and uh, it flashes all this text information at you every time you hit about, like, 
you know, did you hit the track and did the gun have an effect or whatnot? So all the time it's like you're having shots that don't necessarily have a full measurable effect on the armor. And uh, as a kid, that was just like terribly frustrating for me. But now I'm playing it and I understand it. And one thing that is very clear to me now is that like a lot of guns in that game simulating the sort of like difference of tech in World War II is like if you have infantry with rifles shooting at a tank, there's just no chance that like no matter how many times you hit it, it's never going to actually do any significant damage. Right. And so often you'll have like, you know, you'll have the enemy firing on your tanks as you advance, but it's like, oh, they hit me, but it was with submachine guns, so I'm fine. Oh, they hit me with a shell, but it was a weak shell that would have been like more effective. It was like a mortar shell that was designed for infantry. No, no effect. Uh, the game Blitzkrieg does a fair job of like illustrating this, like just how like invincible tanks can be. I bring all this up partially because it's something I've been up to lately, but also because. You talked about the Moss Eisley spaceport shootout. And like, even when I was a kid, there was this idea of like, yeah, but if even if they hit the Millennium Falcon, is it going to do anything? Like, I was always, there any I always thought that they were just trying to hit the crew, though. Yeah, but like once they're in the Millennium Falcon and taking off, it's like. They're just. They're just wasting shots, these stormtroopers. It's a, it's like I get the visual of it. But I guess all this to say, was there any chance that Imogen's Patience's guys could hurt the ship, the Phoenix, when they were taking off with their small arms? A slim chance, because like another thing that doesn't exist in the Firefly universe is shields. Like, it's... You know, it, just like if you shoot up an airplane's wing enough, it'll have a hard time taking off. There's always a chance that with a lucky shot, they might be able to hit one of the uh, one of the engines or something and cause a problem. I mean, something that I definitely always wanted to play up in this campaign. I never too, felt is, like a single blaster shot could get that lucky on the Millennium Falcon. No, and you I know? mean... It did. It, it didn't in this case. But I, something I always wanted to play up uh, in this campaign was also the idea that uh, their ship is constantly like falling apart. It's it's barely hanging on there. Uh, the the stress of space travel and going in and out of atmospheres uh, is really it's hard on a ship, and so they're constantly having to like repair it and fine tune it just to make sure that they can make it to their next destination. So I would say, like, there's a chance that uh, that one of Patience's posse members could have done some damage to the Phoenix. But as with Moss Eisley Cantina, the main point was, you know, more likely they would wound one of the crew. I think it's like the comparison to make is like it's less like I, what what I'm asking is effectively like is the Phoenix more like a tank? Or is it more like a fighter jet? And I think a fighter jet is more like, well, a, an infantry guy with a gun can hurt a fighter jet if they're lucky. But the chances of hurting a tank are like basically none. 
is definitely closer to a tank or to a jet rather than a tank. It is not well armored, and it's de- it's just not that kind of ship, right? It's it's definitely it's not made as a an offensive ship. It's made as more of a a long range kind of hauler, a hauler, a Harchi hauler. <laughs> hauler, I get it, and yet hauler. Um, it's funny, I uh. I looked up the name uh, Imogen Patience on Google to see who she was in Firefly, and all I got was results from the role-playing game. It seems to have uh, the rundown on Whitefall. It talks about it being a moon of Athens and everything. Then the role-playing game that mentions it, it's like a log for a campaign uh, about voyages of the Rosinante, and that's the ship from The Expanse. Somebody didn't cross the streams. If you uh, if you Google Firefly TV series patients, you'll get a you'll get a shot of her, a photo of the actress. Um, the if I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I watched the Firefly TV series, but I believe that uh, her deal is that she once shot Malcolm Reynolds, Nathan Fillion's character, and then they seek her yeah. help in a different episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's there. It's just, uh, for some reason, if you type image in, it screws up the search. Well, and you know why that is? It's because they never say her name on the TV show. Well, there you go. So I, I referred to the source books to get her full name. Well, this has been another episode of Compare and Campaign. It's a new year. This has been uh, episode 91 on the 4th of January, 2022. Year of the stuttering mind, I tell you, is coming. The 2022 is the year of the stuttering mind. Just tell wait until... Uh, mind. Not me! Wait until yes. February 22nd at 2.22. It's going to be... I'm um, going to malfunction. There's going to be ticker tape coming out of my ears. February 22nd. Smoke coming uh, out of my nose. Is also on a Tuesday. (laughs) Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes, check us out on Facebook, Compare and Campaign on Facebook. If you want to see doodles, links to stuff that we talk about, all the relevant show notes, check out our supplemental materials on Compare or comparecampaign.wordpress.com that's right you got and, it uh, anything else level up your characters Get not that me take care everybody <laughs>